podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features David Seaman, who is an undergraduate student in the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. David is a 2020 recipient of the Susan Quackenbush Scholarship, which supports members of the university's recovery community as they pursue their Michigan degrees and work to make the next best choices in their journey. Susan Quackenbush is a two-time U of M alumna and a member of the Ann Arbor recovery community who believes strongly in the power of connection and community to make an impact on a person's life. David, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Can you please introduce yourself and tell me a bit about your educational focus and career goals? Sure. So my name's David Seaman. I'm an undergraduate student at U of M's College of LSNA. I'm studying linguistics right now. I'm also interested in philosophy, politics, and economics planning to enter law school after I get my undergraduate degree. And what specifically yet, I'm not entirely sure, but there's a number of different things that interest me at U of M. Great. Now, you were awarded the Susan Quackenbush Scholarship, which you're the first recipient of that scholarship. What was your initial reaction when you found out that you were selected? Oh, well, I was absolutely delighted when I was notified that I would receive this scholarship. I come from a pretty humble background. Both of my parents were school teachers and didn't have a lot of money set aside for school. So every little bit that I've received in order to attend U of M has been extremely helpful. I like to think that some of the contributions that I've made to the community, I guess, have paid off somewhat directly, I guess, like financially, not that I ever intended for those services to the community to be you know, rewarded in that way. But yeah, I think it gave me a lot of hope that there are people who see the benefits you know, of service to a community and want to reward that sort of behavior. And it also you know, gives me reason to continue the work and to be able to give back to those who are also doing the same kind of work when I'm in a position to do so. Yeah, now you mentioned community and service work. What type of service work are you engaged in? So mostly been involved with giving back to the recovering community, mainly in Ann Arbor through the recovery Dharma movement. It's a supplement to traditional 12-step program, which seeks to support people who are recovering from substance use disorders. It combines meditation with Buddhist principles to address, we call them unskillful behaviors that can lead folks back to substance use I'm also, I guess, before COVID-19, I was heavily involved with the local Buddhist temple, Zen Buddhist temple off Packard Road, and got to help rebuild some this new Sangha house in the back and, yeah, got to be involved with them. Yeah, now you mentioned your own practice with Buddhism and then also how it's now connecting to the recovery community. What do you think is the bridge between those two that makes it work well with people in recovery? So there's this space that exists in between, you know, 
a thought or, or impulse to use and a craving, which then sets in and is referred to as the allergy of the body. And it's this allergy which defines alcoholism and substance use disorders as, you know, actual diseases. And finding that space which exists between the thought and the craving, that's where meditation can come in and be extremely beneficial to people. Just sort of elongating that space. Say, you know, for instance, someone has a thought about using or doing something destructive. If they're able to put space in between to pause and reflect, say that maybe this isn't something that I want to do, or let me do this before I decide to act on that. You know, that's where I think meditation comes in. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that's just taking a pause, reflecting before making decision, kind of being more intentional. Is that capturing it or is there something more to it? I think that says it pretty well. Being intentional with your thoughts and actions, it's really hard to say that my thoughts are leading to these kinds of actions. But I think in recovery and, you know, after a self-assessment, we realize that my thoughts are leading into all these different areas of my life, into all these different actions, and can see that there is a direct connection. So what I think meditation does is allow you to notice the thoughts and notice where they're going. And by doing that, you not only have more of a control of the thoughts, but then you get more control over actions and feelings and all that. Mm -hmm. You know, what you just described is amazing work. And, you know, helping people in recovery is a wonderful area to channel all the positive energy you're describing. When you look back over your accomplishments to date... What are three time points that you're really proud of? I think what comes to mind first is this recovery is good business effort I was involved with. And actually, I got a volunteer of the month award from Don Farm for this venture. While I was working at Detroit Street Filling Station, I collaborated with several other businesses in the Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti area who were actively hiring people who were in recovery to host this Dine for Recovery event where a percentage of the different sales that came in on specific nights this past February and January went directly to indigent beds at Dawn Farm. So essentially these businesses were giving proceeds of their sales for a specific day in these months of the year to get people into treatment who otherwise wouldn't have the funds to get in themselves. So I was really proud of that. Another, obviously, is getting accepted into the U of M. You know, growing up, like I said, my family didn't have a whole lot of money. You know, I had a lot of issues that I was dealing with related to substance use and, you know, just making poor decisions as a kid and not having a whole lot of support through those decisions. And to go from, you know, where I was at just maybe four years ago, I was homeless and had a substance use disorder that was active and just in a really, really terrible place. And to go from that to slowly rebuilding my life and, you know, getting an acceptance email from U of M that really gave me reason to pause and reflect just on how far I'd come and made me really hopeful for other people who are in positions similar to myself, you know, that... There's more than just kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel. There's so much more. Yeah, that sticks out to me. 
Yeah, even from those two stories, what I'm hearing is that, you know, you've accomplished a ton in your own personal story, as well as helping others and raising funds for beds for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to go to Don Farm and enter into the recovery community. In both of these, I heard two things that kind of stood out. One is the Don Farm Award, and then one was the acceptance letter. It's almost like those served as a way for you to recognize your own work through those accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And if anything, just, you know, reason to pause and reflect. And I guess having recognition for doing good works just, you know, gives more reason to continue that work. And I hope it also speaks to others, you know, to say that there's inherent value in giving back and being involved with your community. You know, and beyond these like awards or I guess acceptance, if anything, I think what I really focused on is the value of it in that it gives me more connections, more availability to resources, which I can use to then, you know, continue to put back in to folks who I see as an underserved population in the area, those who are recovering from substance use disorders. There's so many different variables involved there from people who may have felonies and aren't able to get certain jobs or minority groups that typically don't have the same kind of access to treatment as uh, white people do. Yeah, there's a lot of different areas just within the recovering community that need the kind of resources that U of M has that people like Susan Quackenbush have and are committed to giving back with. Yeah, so you had mentioned earlier how you wanted to go to law school after this. You know, when you see kind of the the network that you're building and the accomplishments that you're kind of gaining skills through and gaining space through, how do you see law school as a next step in that? Well, I think that's a, yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. And I think going off of what I was saying before, there being this sort of like intrinsic relationship between how we look at substance use disorders right now, morally, we look at it and judge it as maybe a lack of moral fiber or potentially see people with substance use disorders as people that maybe don't belong in society. And so we label them as criminals rather than people who are sick or suffering. And we then like deprive them from the community that they need so badly. One definition of the opposite of addiction that I've heard and like a lot, being community, being connection. And so when we take people away from the very like solution to their problem, which is connection to a community, we're just aggravating the problem. And we see so much recidivism for people with substance use disorders. You know, majority of people who are currently locked up are individuals with some kind of alcohol related offense. So I sort of see my going to law school and getting a better understanding of that relationship and maybe the why and how we define addiction and alcoholism as criminal behavior and understanding that better to address, you know, how could better serve communities of people who who are struggling. Now, you had mentioned, you know, community is the opposite of addiction which right now during this pandemic era, it is so difficult to be with community. How is that affecting the recovery community? You know, the recovering community has been surprisingly resilient, maybe not surprisingly. Thinking about people who are in recovery, they've come from 
from the depths, you know, they've come from despair and real, real hopelessness. And going into recovery and the building a foundation of hope, hope for yourself, hope for the, the people you love. And I think that's transferred, you know, that hasn't stopped meetings ever zoomed just through zoom and other online formats and there's still some socially distanced in-person meetings there's definitely you know a sort of strain and a lot of people wanting you know things to go back to the way they were that's also you know a common thread for people who are in recovery but yeah i think there's been a lot of resilience in the recovering community despite some of the setbacks of not being able to meet in person. There's definitely an increase in alcohol purchasing. So we can see sort of an increase in substance use disorders or people seeking treatment as a result of that. I think at the end of the day, there's just not enough beds for people to get into treatment. And that's back to this understanding of alcoholism and addiction as like a lack of moral fiber or you know, some kind of inefficiency and inequality that is inherent to people with addiction or alcoholism, which just simply isn't true. Once we shift culturally our values there and can make more room for people with disorders such as alcoholism, addiction, mental health, then we probably won't see that same kind of need. Yeah, it is amazing how things like mental health and substance disorders, how they're so stigmatized in society. And with that stigma mm -hmm. comes isolation and removal of rights. And it's, you know, a major societal problem that we're willing to treat others who are different in ways that we don't understand so poorly. I'm so glad you're doing this work on behalf of all of us. Given all that's currently going on, what's one thing that you wish you could tell your peers or people listening to this podcast? I would say this is another moment that sticks out to me, but it goes right along with this. I was uh, the student speaker at Washtenaw Community College for winter commencement in 2020, and I was asked to give a speech directed to students. And what I told them is the same thing that you know I would want to tell anybody listening to this podcast and tell my peers. It's that there's a certain responsibility that comes with this level that we're at with the resources that we have at our disposal through U of M. And there's also this feeling now of scarcity that maybe I don't have enough of what I want or enough of what I need. And when we redirect that scarcity that we feel to understand that everybody around us feels the same way, and when we give the resources that we think we need to hold to ourselves to others, and we work off of that principle to say, like, I'm going to share what I can with those who are lacking, then you can come to expect the same thing's going to be done for you. And so I guess like in short, what we can do when we're feeling alone or scared is give back. And that's how community works and that's how community happens that's how community builds yeah that's a beautiful message of you know what we fear losing the most when we take the opportunity to give it to someone else it removes that fear because it's now within our control 
Completely. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great message, especially now with toilet paper flying off the shelf, alcohol, you know, random things day to day. You'll just see shelves empty of stuff that, you know, is all scarcity purchasing, like mm-hmm. cleaning supplies and, you know, whatever else is the hot thing for the moment. Mm-hmm. And that message is really pertinent to these times. David, it has been such a pleasure to listen to you and listen to your vision and your passion. You know, I have no doubt that you are going to be the one who's able to have a hand in changing how people perceive the recovering community. It is such a resilient group of folks that the skill, the resilience, the strength is all completely underestimated. And I hope you're able to change that narrative. Thank you. I, I won't be able to do it by myself at all. <laughs> no, but I'm very happy to be a cog in the machine and to help do my part. Yeah. I look forward to following your work and your progress. Thank you so much again for taking time today and for participating in this. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW Plus, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW Plus, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Adawa, and Potawatomi.